we spend $4.5 trillion a year on healthcare in the United States. We think we have some of the greatest healthcare in the world when the fact of the matter is the United States ranks 11th out of 11 industrialized countries in terms of affordability, access to care, quality of care, and patient satisfaction, which are, those would seem to me to be important features in a healthcare system. And as we took a look at what needed to be different, what had to change in healthcare from that third-party payer system, and we determined that the way you change it is you have to disrupt it. You can't just try to reform it. We've seen lots of strategies, lots of attempts to reform it, and what ends up happening is it makes it worse. Hi, and welcome to the 91 Day Success Podcast. I'm Jonathan, your host, and I am so happy today to have with me Mark Blocker from Christian Healthcare Centers and Christian Healthcare Specialists to talk about what I think is probably the single best healthcare idea that I've ever seen. We're going to talk today about direct primary care, and we're also going to talk to Mark about how he's grown this amazing practice to serve hundreds, if not thousands of people in the community, and a little bit about how that benefits those. And I'll admit, I'm biased. I've been a member of Christian Healthcare Centers for many years now, and I find it to be an incredible way not only to deal with local doctors and deal with people that are right in my community, but to get just amazing health care. So, Mark, I don't mean to steal your thunder, but as I am an absolute huge advocate of the direct primary care model and what you're doing at Christian Healthcare Centers and specialists. Can you tell everybody in the 30-second overview, who are you? And then tell us just a little bit about Christian Healthcare Centers for those that maybe aren't familiar with that model. Sure. Jonathan, first of all, thanks for being a member at CHC. You've been a great advocate for us. The Christian Healthcare Centers is like a doctor's office. In fact, it is a doctor's office. We do primary care, and also now with our daughter organization, Christian Healthcare Specialists, we do some in-office procedures as well as some outpatient surgeries. Our goal from the start was to change the way healthcare is delivered. And also an important component of that was to, to bring back the Christian presence and Christian voice in healthcare that seems to increasingly be missing when it comes to modern medicine. And so we started this, we started the process in 2012, incorporated in 2015, and actually opened our doors and began seeing patients in 2017. Since then, we've grown to where we serve now, uh, 40 have patients from 40 different counties in Michigan. I think there's 85 counties in the entire state, and we have 40 counties represented in our patient panel. We see patients from 18 different states and eight foreign countries. And so wow. we've really spread our brand, if you will, out of the state of Michigan, out of West Michigan, and based on the number of calls that we get from groups around the country that want to transplant this model into their communities, I think we, we've crossed the threshold of whether or not this model has any viability to it. Absolutely. And again, speaking as a member and a patient, I absolutely love the health care that we get and the just the community created through that, the doctors I get to deal with, the nurses, your staff. I find the, the process to be, candidly, everything I could have imagined. Let's take a little step back, though. We talk a lot on this podcast, not just about things like health care, but a 
how did everything get started? And we have a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners that are listening. Talk to me a little bit, Mark, if you would, about how did this idea come about and what caused you to decide to spearhead it and really champion this in the West Michigan marketplace? It really traces back to my earlier adult life when I was starting crisis pregnancy centers and inner city medical clinics to provide medical services to uninsured individuals, low-income households. But I began to see the direction that modern medicine was going, and it was going in a bad direction. It was taking less and less of a notice of what the patient's needs were, and it was becoming more and more payment-driven. That was a big part of it. The other part of it was the ethical side of it. We, I began to see medicine beginning to medicalize things that really aren't medical concerns. And we're seeing some of that now, even with using medicine to do things that medicine's really not intended to do. So I, as I began to look at that, particularly in the 1990s, and then Hillary Care came along. And when Hillary was the head of, of the, the health care reform task force that her husband put together as president, and when they rolled that plan out and it had 21 felonies in it that a doctor could be convicted of, one of those was if a patient came to a doctor and was going to pay with cash versus use this universal health plan program that Hillary was proposing, that was a one-year felony if a doctor did that, and it was a one-year felony for the patient who paid him. And, I, wow. and at that point, I said, we have got to change the way health care is delivered. And we've got to bring the Christian presence and Christian voice back. So I began to incubate on that idea all the way through the 2000s. I was teaching full-time as a professor at Cornerstone University, taught at Western Michigan University as well, and then guest lectured at other schools, wrote some books on medical ethics and, and a, a number of articles that were published in magazines and journals and newspapers, basically calling for a change to the way we deliver health care. Finally, in 2012, out of a discipleship group in my church where we would meet every Tuesday morning at 6 in the morning in a restaurant, it seems like all good entrepreneurial ideas start at a restaurant, <laughs> and they get drawn out on a restaurant napkin, and that's what happened with this. So as I was talking with Brian Ennis, who is our, now our director of operations, and Jeff Wu, who is our medical director and an internal medicine physician, began to describe this model. I didn't even know what direct primary care was at that point. It really wasn't much of a thing at that point, but began to describe this model of what if we take all the insurance nonsense and barriers out of the mix, and what if we just have a direct patient, doctor-patient relationship where the doctor doesn't have three hours of paperwork to do at the end of the day that cuts into his family time, he just gets to practice medicine. He doesn't have to run HR. He doesn't have to do all the back office bookkeeping. He just doctors. And the doctor goes home at five o'clock at night and has dinner with his family and enjoys his kids and doesn't get burned out. And I remember Jeff Wu saying, so where exactly is this medical utopia that you're talking about? <laughs> and I said, well, as far as I know, it doesn't exist, but why don't we create it? And so having been a kind of a serial entrepreneur, if you will, for social needs, starting clinics, starting crisis pregnancy centers, starting something new wasn't all that frightening to me, but it was brand new for Jeff and for Brian because they were used to being employed in a system where they didn't have to do 
all that you have to do when you're going to be an entrepreneur. But uh, we launched, as I said, in 2015, we actually incorporated. And then we spent a lot of money and we had some healthcare attorneys that we hired and we had, we assigned them two jobs. One was for them to go out and find somebody else that was doing what we were doing or what we were proposing to do. And even before that, check the law, check regulations, state laws, and tell us why we couldn't do it. Attorneys are really good at telling you what you can't do. So we thought, let's ask them to find all the reasons why we can't do this legally. And so we spent a lot of money and they took a couple of months and they came back and said to us, one, there was no legal reason why we couldn't do it. And number two, they didn't find anybody else who was out there doing it. So they, in fact, their advice to us was maybe you'll go ahead and try to do this and then you'll find out why nobody else is doing it. I thought that's a wonderful vote of confidence. So about the first hundred people that we shared this idea with, all of them told us that the model would never work. And at that point, I thought we must be on to something because <laughs> there, there's a, an open pathway for us to create something new and distinctively different that we're not going to have a worry if somebody else has already done it. And, uh, and so we got to create the template. Again, I think what's unique about that is it's very similar to so many entrepreneurial journeys that are out there and how things have evolved. Obviously, it's it can be disheartening, disenchanting when you're excited about an idea. As you mentioned, the first hundred or so people you talk to aren't necessarily as excited as you are. Talk to me a little bit and share with our listeners, Mark, how did you work through that? You guys are excited. You and Jeff and Brian are, this is great. This is going to work. And then again, the first large group of people you chat with are all telling you it's not going to work for whatever reason. How did you get through that time and continue to push through? Because you've turned it into an amazing success, but obviously at the beginning, it wasn't quite there. How did you get through that from a just practical perspective? Well, I took, a, I took a page out of Walt Disney's playbook. Walt Disney was a guy that had all kinds of ideas. And he had this group of people he called informally an advisory group. And whenever he had an idea, he would take it to this group. And if they were 100% against that idea, that's what he did. So Interesting. Dis Disneyland was the result of one of those ideas that this advisory group had panned and said, nah, that's not going to work. And so he went ahead and obviously proved them very wrong. But if you talk to people like a Jeff Bezos and the people that he talked to in forming Amazon, he'll, he talks about how many people uh, said, oh, no, there's no way I'm going to invest in that. That thing's never going to work. And then some of them came back later after it was very successful and said, hey, can I now invest? And it's, it's, it was like that for us, even though we're a nonprofit. So there wasn't anything for people to invest in. But at the beginning, it was very difficult to raise that startup money. We didn't want to go into debt. We didn't, we didn't want to be able to, to form it in such a way that would actually undermine our success. Because if we're going to be a distinctively Christian organization, we need to operate in a distinctively Christian way. And it would be very difficult for us to do that if we had to try to keep our mind and our eyes focused on our mission. And at the same time, We've got investors that we have to give them some kind of return on investment. So we just kept it focused on being nonprofit, being Christian, being mission driven, and, and trusting that God was going to bring the resources. And he did. We got a lot of no's, but we got some very strategic yeses along the way. And that was enabled us to make it a success. The other thing 
that I'll tell you, and this is not un, uncommon for founders of, of businesses and organizations, we all went without pay for a couple of years. We didn't take any compensation for the first two and a half years. And we found ways to fund our households while we, while we built the, the ministry. And God caused us to, to flourish in spite of resources being in short supply. It's an amazing story, and I love hearing how that corresponds. I know that, again, I'm sure I'm not alone as a founder in a business that was looking for ways, not only for my family to get great health care, but for ways to provide that to our staff as well. And certainly CHC has provided that in, in spades to us. As we walk through that process, and people are listening to us, and maybe they don't understand that direct primary care model. If I can, I'm going to try to describe it, but will you correct me where I make mistakes on this? Because I, I think that was one of the hardest things for me to get my arms around when I first heard about what you were doing. And it's, hang on, this is different. This can't work. And that's it, that direct primary care model as a member. I literally, I pay a membership fee to Christian healthcare centers for me and my family. And that essentially covers all of our primary care. I'm sure there's an asterisk in there somewhere, but we've not found it in the years we've been members. And it then also gets us access to one of the things that I found probably most amazing is both discounted prescriptions and discounted services. And I know I'll just share in my case in particular, I had one prescription I was taking that was running between $150 and $180 a month when I had, I won't say the name, but the major carrier in West Michigan is my health care. And when we moved to you, I stayed on that same medication, but it now costs me $8 a month. We also know that for some basic testing that has to be done, mammograms and things like that, you guys provide incredibly discounted services, things that are oftentimes one-tenth the cost. And ironically, as I found out, sometimes offered by the same major health system that charges 10 times more if I walk in with their insurance. Can you talk a little bit about that and how, as a direct primary care provider, you guys not only provide that primary care, but you also provide and managed to negotiate such incredible discounts for your members on things like prescriptions and specialized services. Yeah. What's interesting is that we've had about about 80 years of third-party payer healthcare, where the patient isn't the one paying for the healthcare. It's an insurance company or some third party. And over that span of time, what's developed is that mi- that mindset that insurance should pay for and cover everything that I get, including my $2 prescription. And that formula has produced the most expensive health care in the world. We spend $4.5 trillion a year on health care in the United States. We think we have some of the greatest health care in the world when the fact of the matter is the United States ranks 11th out of 11 industrialized countries in terms of affordability, access to care, quality of care, and patient satisfaction, which are those would seem to me to be important features in a healthcare system. And as we took a look at what needed to be different, what had to change in healthcare from that third party payer system. And we determined that the way you change it is you have to disrupt it. You can't just try to reform it. We've seen lots of strategies, lots of attempts to reform it. And what ends up happening is it makes it worse. You know, we end up getting proposals like Bernie Care or Medicare for All, which is an obscene and ridiculous proposal. 
what we did is we took a look at what are the things that are the barriers that people encounter getting access to their doctor? What are the barriers that keep doctors from being able to just doc to do what they do best and have that doctor-patient relationship? And so as we looked more and more at this, we, we saw that the subscription model, if you will, or I call it the gym membership model of payment, where you pay that monthly fee and you get unlimited access to all the services that we provide. And then it was a matter of making sure that we could provide as much of a comprehensive scope of service as we could. So we have in-office x-rays. You know, we have in-office labs that we can do. We have a number of procedures that we do in the office that are just part of that membership. If somebody's child needs stitches, they bring them in, we stitch them up. And at an emergency room, it's 500 bucks a stitch. In our office, it's just part of your membership. And so a, a, a child's membership is 20 bucks a month, $240 a year. I'd like to know where someone can get unlimited pediatric care for 240 bucks a year. That one visit would cost that much. Why, why are we able to do it so economically? The main reason is because we don't have 60% of our overhead being spent on people filling out insurance paperwork to get reimbursed. So right out of the gate, you have a lower overhead than the, the office down the street that has people that are pay, being paid by insurance companies who delay reimbursements, reduce reimbursements, create all kinds of bureaucratic headaches for the doctor, telling the doctor, no, you can't prescribe that medication or you can't send them to an MRI because you got to jump through these hoops. We just took all those barriers out of the way with this model so that our relationship is not with an insurance company, it's not with an employer, per se. Our relationship is, it's not with you, Jonathan, even though you're a patient, but as an sure. employer, our relationship is with your employees. We want that, we want that doctor-patient relationship with those patients. And, and because, frankly, patients believe that doctors know better what their needs are than an insurance company does. And that's been proven over and over with all the different studies that have been done by the Kaiser Family Foundation and others that do these studies. Patients in the United States are dissatisfied with their care because of all of the stuff that's between them and their doctor. So we took that out of the way. Very important part of this, and that's one of the things you pointed out, is you have services that people need outside of our office. So our membership fee pays for all the services that we provide. But what about the person that needs the MRI? What about the person that needs a more expensive medication or they need a diagnostic lab or physical therapy? All those different ancillary services. We knew right out of the gate that we needed to go out and find those quality providers in our community who could provide those services and would do it on a cash basis and therefore be willing to give us a discount. And what we found and I guess I can't say we were surprised, but what's been amazing is that we continue to have now providers of those services coming to us, asking to be part of our referral. I don't want to call it a network because that's got a bad name because of insurance. I'll call it a, a syndicate. We have, this, we have this group of people who are collaborating together to provide quality care and do it at a, a fee basis that makes sense for the average person's household. So we're able to go out and get an MRI for 500 bucks that costs 1800 somewhere someplace else. The medication that you mentioned, we're able to go out and negotiate those rates with those drug wholesalers out there 
that's a lot of these other offices, they use the same ones. The only difference is that they're negotiating from an insurance standpoint. And those pharmacy benefit managers know how to make, how to make money off of them. We're able to, to get those discounts and benefit our patients. The other part of it is because we're not driven to maximize our revenue, like most third-party payer offices are, we, we don't upcharge our patients for medications that we order in for them. The only additional charge we might add is $1.50 to fill the prescription and provide the bottle for it and do that. But we don't upcharge like a, a pharmacy would or some of these other places do. And then, and in that respect, last year, and I, I think just about every year we've been open, we've probably saved our members over a million dollars easily of money that they would have paid out of pocket for primary care. That's not even counting the discounts that we get for outpatient surgeries and colonoscopies and so forth, which that's another reason why we started Christian Healthcare Specialists. It's a daughter organization for us. And we opened up a small in-office procedure and outpatient surgery center up in our Nuego office. So we're able to do those colonoscopies. I just saw a list of pricing for a colon for a for a screening colonoscopy, you hit 45 and they want you to go in and get scoped, which of course everybody looks forward to that. Of course. You look at the average cost of a colonoscopy is 2,500 bucks. We do a colonoscopy for 1,050. So somebody could travel here from another state and get their colonoscopy and go sit on the beach at Lake Michigan in the summertime and enjoy a day or two on the beach and still save money. We had one family, we had one lady that came to us from Delaware. She needed an upper endoscopy because she thought her doctor thought she might have a hiatal hernia. She needed a colonoscopy because she was having some GI issues. She needed a breast biopsy because she discovered a lump. And then she also had a hemorrhoid issue that we could take care of in the office. And so we were able to take care of all of that. Normally, that would have cost over $15,000. We did it for $2,400. Wow. And we did it all in one day at, on one trip. And, and so she was able to go back home and tell that story to all of her friends. And now we're getting people coming from Delaware and Pennsylvania and Vermont and New Hampshire and uh, Ohio. Probably less than what her deductible would have been had she went through normal service or normal insurance even. That's exactly. amazing. Yeah, and there's more that can be done. Our goal, ultimately, our vision is to have a full freestanding outpatient sur- series of outpatient surgery centers, not just one, have them spread across the country so they can be hubs for a lot of people who are not traditionally insured. They might be a member of a healthcare sharing organization or self-employed or self-insured employers who want to drive down their healthcare spend so they can use those surgery centers and actually save a whole lot of money so that they, they're not spending as much on it and they can give employees raises that are actually a raise. And it's, a, it's good for people that have high deductible insurance plans because a lot of times we've found that people that have those high deductibles, it's actually money ahead for them to pay the cash price than to use their insurance when they haven't met their deductible. Absolutely. Let's talk about two things I know if I was watching and listening, I'd be wanting to ask. I know prices aren't, they change a little bit and obviously that's the life, but as of today, when we're recording this, what's a membership cost for an adult? What's that look like? What type of costs 
does someone incur at that point, Mark? For unlimited access to our services, it's $90 a month for an adult from age 19 to 65. From 65 wow. up, it's $80. So we drop it $10 a month for that senior. And we get a lot of Medicare patients, just had a gentleman in yesterday that has everything Medicare. But what he wants is high-quality care. What he wants is access to a doctor. And he's willing to pay the extra 80 bucks a month in order to get that. And then That's we have amazing. And, and our rates for kids from kids age two up to age 18 is 20 bucks a month. A newborn baby, we charge 35 just because there's a whole lot you have to do the first two years. And then after two years, they age into that child rate. So very flexible plans. Again, people probably spend more on their cell phone than they would on a membership with CHC. Amazing. So I know the other question that comes up as I've been a proponent of this for years, Mark, as I've talked to people is that's all great, but what happens if I have a heart attack or a stroke or whatever? How do your members handle those catastrophic situations without having traditional insurance? Yeah, it's a question I get every day. Okay, I've got my primary care covered with you guys, but what do I do if I do have that big heart issue or I do need surgery? That's it. We have a variety of, of strategies that people have used here. Some are traditionally insured. As I said, some of them have employer-provided insurance or they buy a plan off the exchange that's a very high deductible plan that hopefully the premium is reasonable. A lot of people are moving into healthcare sharing organizations like Samaritan Ministries or MediShare, Christian Healthcare Ministries. Those health shares are really aimed at Christians, particularly sharing one another's medical expenses. And then, so they function more or less like a major medical plan, even though they're not insurance. They're usually a lot cheaper than insurance is. And I'm a member of one. I'm a member of Samaritan Ministries have been for years, and I wouldn't want to do major medical any other way. It works great. It's, it takes a shift in your mindset. You have to shift away from the insurance mindset and shift over to the notion of I'm part of a community and we're going to share each other's medical expenses. And my wife right now, for example, she needs some medical equipment. Well, it would be shareable, meaning I could send that to the bill for it into Samaritan and they would, they would pay for it. But I want to lessen the burden on the community, and it's something I can afford myself. It's Major medical insurance has been one of the most abused forms of insurance, and I can't even call it insurance anymore. It's prepaid medical in most people's minds. I should be able to get Rolls-Royce level health care, and somebody else should have to pay for it. These health share organizations are really designed around the idea of stewardship. I want to be there to bear the burdens of my fellow members in this group, and I don't want to burden them when I don't have to. The medical equipment my wife needs is not going to bankrupt the blocker household. If she has a major heart issue, like you mentioned, a heart attack, that's what I want some of that, the, the good graces of the community to help me pay those bills. But here's the other side of that, Jonathan. When you have insurance, traditional insurance, there's no negotiating with the hospital about what those charges are going to be. They're already negotiated by the insurance company. When I'm a member of a cost-sharing group, of a healthcare sharing group, I still retain the ability to negotiate, and I do. Now, not everybody's comfortable doing that, but I have negotiated or given people the ability to negotiate a lot of hospitalization bills, 
and they have been very successful in reducing those. I'll give you one example, and I'll use my son, my adult son, as the example. He had a two-day stay in the hospital for an upper GI bleed. Thankfully, they were able to take care of that need. It was a life-threatening situation. He was there two days. He was released from the hospital. About 10 days later, we got the bill. Actually, you get a stack of bills from everybody that stuck their head in the door. $32,000 for a two-day hospital stay. I got permission from him to negotiate on his behalf. I wrote one letter to the hospital asking very direct questions about the bill. Within a week, we got a letter back from the hospital that the bill had gone from $32,000 down to 9000 Wow. Just with one letter. one letter. Now, it's what's in the letter that matters. Most people don't know what to put in that letter. And in fact, most people today, what they'll do is they get that bill, they don't even question it, they don't even ask any questions about it. They just, oh, how am I going to pay for this? And a lot of them, 61% of people in America, put it on a credit card. The mm. worst thing you could possibly do. So not only do we focus on providing high-quality care to our patients, we also want to help them navigate this very expensive and very fragmented healthcare system so that uh, they get good quality care in a timely manner and they have money that they keep in their pocket. They're not spending money on health care expenses that they don't have to spend. Just an amazing story. And I think it's so enlightening to find out that the system doesn't have to work maybe the way we've been told it has to work. I know I learned that many years ago for a period of time, my wife and I were uninsured from a health perspective. And when I had to go to the pediatrician, this was before Christian Healthcare Centers for the record, I remember going to the pediatrician and going, we're uninsured. And miraculously, I remember a $500 office visit, approximately, my numbers may be off by a dollar or two, turned into a $150 office visit by me just saying, I'm paying cash. Yeah. That's yep. it. And I asked the customer service person, what's up with the difference? And she said the same thing you did. And this is, again, at a actually one of the many practices that's part of the major medical group in West Michigan. And she said, we don't have to fight with the insurance company. We're happy to do it for $150. That's right. So in that case, over two-thirds of that cost was basically to argue and deal with the hassle of the insurance company. Yep. And let me just say this in addition to that. Not only do we, I think, have a very good way of driving down the cost of healthcare, but it's something that is very important to the model that we have, and that is the ability to give patients the time they need with their doctor to get mm -hmm. their questions answered, to get their anxieties relieved, to be able to deal with the issues that they bring into the exam room. In an insured practice, I'll use my mom as an example, 91 years old. Every time I took her to her doctor appointments, her doctor would say, now, Donna, you know that I only have time for one question and I can only deal with one condition. If you have more than that, you're going to have to make another appointment, which would take about three months for her to get another appointment to get back in there. And she would get anywhere from 18, 8 to 12 minutes with that doctor. And why is that? Because of the overhead that he has paying for people that have to process all these insurance claims and all of that. He's got to have 25 to 30 people sitting out of that waiting room waiting to see him in order for him to pay all the overhead and make some kind of a living. No wonder these doctors are burned out. In our office, our docs see about 8 to 12 patients a day. 
We have 30, 60, 90 minute appointment times. We do a lot of telemedicine. We have done virtual visits all over the world and we don't charge extra for that. So if somebody is in the Amazon or they're in Timbuktu or they're in Thailand or wherever, they, we can do a virtual visit with them. We have a videographer for National Geographic, travels all over the world. And uh, so we'll get a call from him and it'll be a FaceTime visit or it'll be Skype or something like that. And he'll show us some funky rash that he got when he was down in the Amazon. And, you know, our docs are able to provide some guidance or direct him to, here's some medication that you need to look for. And more often than not, they're able to get that. That's absolutely amazing. I know one of the other burning questions that I'm sure is in the back of people's minds is, Mark, obviously it's Christian Healthcare Specialist and Christian Healthcare Center. What happens if you're not a person of faith and you want to take advantage of this direct primary care model? Is that an option? And how does that work for someone that may not be someone of faith? It's a great question, and we do get it a lot. But do we have to be a Christian in order to come to Christian healthcare centers? The answer is no. In fact, our patient panel is increasingly diverse. We have people here from every kind of religious background, no religious background, every different demographic group you can think of, we have them here. I remember talking to a gentleman who comes with his family. He's Hindu. And I asked him, I said, why would you as a Hindu come to a Christian healthcare organization for your care, for your, yourself and your family. His response was, because I know that you will love me and tell me the truth. Mm. If there love was it. no other reason for us to be here than that, it's enough. We, we didn't hide the fact that we we're Christians. So all of our doctors, all of our support staff are all Christians, but our patients aren't necessarily. A lot of them are but I wouldn't say most of them. I would say that there's a very diverse population of people who come here. And quite honestly, it's not the sign on the door. It's not the name that we have that is, it is drawing them. It's the quality of care they get and the way we treat them. The one quality, the one qualification that everybody who works for us must have is they have to be given to hospitality. They've got to be focused on taking care of the person that walks through the door. Whatever their role in the company is, whatever it is that their function is, their focus needs to be on providing quality, personalized care to that individual. Yes, there are times when we, we have people who show up to work and they're a little grumpy, and so we take, into, take that into account. And we have patients who show up, and when people are in pain, they can be a little grumpy. We need people who will go above and beyond to extend love and hospitality to the people that come through the door. And if there's, you know, if there was a list of uh, frequent statements that we've heard from patients, we we hear things like, I've never had a doctor experience like this before, or all of your staff seem to really like each other, all those kinds of things. And that, and that just warms my heart because that's really what we've aimed to do from the start. If we were going to be Christian, we couldn't just meet people's expectations. We had to exceed them. We had to. We have to demonstrate that uh, that we're not just uh, like the guy down the street. We're we're exceptional, and that's right in our mission statement that we want to provide exceptional medical services. And so, I every morning we start the day and remind our staff: this is what our mission is. This is who we are. Let's make sure that we practice in a way that makes God look good. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's just so amazing. 
Mark, I love what you shared. We're going to share a bunch of information about how to get in touch if people are interested in learning about what you do, regardless of where they may be at in the United States or possibly even the world. The fact that you guys have programs to help them in many cases, we'll get all that shared. If somebody's driving down the road though right now, and maybe they're not at a spot to take a note, what can you give them as something memorable, something easy? What should they do? If they want to learn more about what you're doing at Christian Healthcare Centers and specialists, what can they do to take that next step and learn if it's maybe something that would be good for them and their family? They can, very simply, they can just go to their web browser and type in Christian Healthcare Centers and we'll pop up. We've got a presence that's not hard to find us on the web. And from there, they can contact us either through email or through telephone. We, if, we, if they want interest in information on how to start a Christian Healthcare Centers, we have an affiliate program to help people, particularly out of the state of Michigan, how to put one of these together and what the steps are involved in starting one up. We get, a, we get contacts from all over the country. In fact, now all over the world. I just had a conversation with a family doctor out in Nottingham, England. And wow. He and his father, father-in-law, who is also a physician, are looking to start a CHC in Nottingham, England, as an alternative to the National Health Service that they have in the UK. You know, people have a way of thinking that these nationalized, socialized medicine practices are all that and then some. Well, these doctors beg to differ, and they want to start a CHC in the UK. Well, that's amazing. Wow, I love to hear that. What a great story. Mark, we call the podcast the 91 Day Success Podcast, and the reason we do that is I ask every one of our guests, and I know you're, as you mentioned, an entrepreneur at heart as well, but you got a tremendous nonprofit background. What advice would you give to someone that was starting up, whether it be a business or a nonprofit, the things that they should do in the first three months or 91 days to establish themselves with a solid footing to grow upon, what advice might you give them, again, to follow on those first 91 days? Anything you could share with us? Sure. The very first thing, whether you're starting a nonprofit ministry type of an organization or you're starting a for-profit, you've got to be able to answer the question, why are you wanting to do that? If the why is clear, the how gets a lot easier. And I think in the, very first, in the very beginning, you need to sit down and really refine the messaging behind what is your why. Because you're going to be out there talking to people about trying to either raise startup money or you're trying to recruit people to be involved in, in, in what it is you're trying to do. You've got to have that messaging refined so that they know what the why is. Because people... Generally, people want to know that they're going to get involved in something that has some significance to it. If you can't articulate that, they're not going to see what you're doing as being that, that significant. Second of all, don't sit down and think about all the ways that you're going to make money from this. Think about all the ways that you're going to serve people. I like what Zig Ziglar used to say, you can always get what you want if you help enough other people get what they want. Absolutely. So find what people really want. And what it is that you, what you offer, what, you know, your value proposition, whatever you want to call it, make sure you understand what that is. And third part of that messaging is don't simply focus on what you want to tell people about what you want to do. What do they need to hear? What is it that they need to hear about what it is that you're doing? When I began talking to people about Christian healthcare centers, I learned very quickly 
that I was all that I was all excited about telling them what our long-term vision was. Man, we're going to start patient surgery centers and this and that. And what they wanted to hear was, how does this work with my insurance? How does this, how is this better than what I get from my doctor now? So make sure that you're telling people what they need to, what they want to hear, not so much what you want to tell them. The other thing is, the other thing that I would tell you in the first three months or maybe longer, make the sacrifice, get out of bed, start a, a work pattern that is going to carry you forward to that success. You're, you're not going to be successful if you lay in bed and dream about what your entrepreneurship project is going to look like at its, at its maturity. Yeah, you want to think about what it looks like at maturity, but what will you, five years from now, what will you be glad you did today that needs to be done? And then go do it. And most, Great question. Most people fail because they... They've got a great plan. They've got a they've got a great vision of what they want to do, but they haven't actually done the activity, had the activity results that they need in order to be successful. I went out and talked to about a hundred of my best friends and acquaintances about getting them involved in Christian healthcare centers. And it would have been very easy to get discouraged when you talk to those people that know you the best and they tell you, Yeah, this isn't gonna work. No way. But it was good practice for going out and talking to people that I didn't know that other people introduced me to. I had the ability to refine the story, know what the objections were going to be, able to answer questions before people had to ask them. So when I got done, people would say, this is, the most common thing I heard was, this is intriguing. If I got that out of a person I know, then that I was going to get somebody involved because they were intrigued enough, they wanted to learn more. Great advice, Mark, and I think probably some of the best advice we've heard. I, I love everything that you said there, and I think it's all so core to establishing that success on a long-term basis. I want to thank you for your time today. I know you've got a lot going on, and while you've always been incredibly generous with your time with me, I am so grateful to, to share this. And as an incredibly happy member of Christian Healthcare Centers, I want to encourage anyone listening to this podcast, if health insurance and healthcare is a struggle for you, your family, your business, reach out and learn more about what Mark and his team are doing, because I have to tell you, it is better than you can even imagine. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. And we are truly grateful. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to your audience. Absolutely. And if you've stuck with us through the whole podcast, I want to say a special thank you to our listeners and our viewers too. This has been a little bit different as we've talked about a nonprofit in the entrepreneurial journey, but I hope you can see how everything ties together and especially Mark's advice on what to do in the first 91 days, how that really can be impactful for all of us. So with that, thank you for your time and make it a great day.